So a few months ago, I was messing around on Netflix, kind of looking for something to fill my time, which I don't know what that says about me, but uh, anyhow, I stumbled upon the show Swamp People. Has anyone seen Swamp People? You know what I'm talking about? So there's this crazy reality show about these families in the Everglades or wherever. No, it's down in like the south, the bayou, and they're like alligator hunters. And it's crazy. Like it's actually entertaining. It's better than I thought it was going to be. But I I kind of bring that up because it's a ridiculous premise for a a reality TV show. In fact, I I got to thinking like when did reality TV start? And for me, for my generation, it would probably be like MTV is the real world. And the premise is you just like find some co-housing situation. You put all these diverse messed up people in it, single people, and put a camera in there and watch what happens. And it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and it's, reality TV has really evolved since then. So now you have uh, you know, competition reality TV like Survivor or Amazing Race, which I kind of like Amazing Race. Uh, and then you have just the absurdity. Like there's a show about that family that makes duck calls. Yeah, like there's a whole, like they draw enough people to, is that entertaining? Um, to be honest, I don't like most reality TV because I don't think it's very real. <laughs> like it, some of these characters, I, I feel like they're probably reading lines or something. But I got to think, so what is the appeal of reality TV? Why has it lasted for so long? And why are there so many different forms of reality TV? And here's what I think it is. I think, to some degree, we like seeing dysfunction on TV, even though it's exaggerated on a lot of these shows, because it more accurately depicts my life and your life. I mean, if we're honest, that's how it is. Uh, I... Honestly, like as a father of three young kids, I find Super Nanny way more realistic than The Cosby Show. Because the last time I checked, I couldn't just do a funny quip and make my kids do whatever I want. I couldn't say, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. And, ha ha, you know, like that's not reality. Reality is not a 30-minute sitcom where every other line is funny and everything resolves at the end of the show and everyone goes to bed happy. Reality is messiness and craziness. And I think that that's probably why... Reality TV is so appealing to the masses. Following God is very much like reality TV. It's more like reality TV than the Cosby Show or any other regular sitcom. Now, we've been exploring the book of Genesis for the last three years during the fall season. And as we keep going, I'm more and more convinced that this thing is reading like the script of a reality TV show. So, we're going to call our TV show here in Genesis... The Patriarchs. And tonight's episode is called Patriarchs, Unstoppable Blessing. It's, it's, it comes in four scenes, so I, we're not going to have commercial breaks, though, so pretend that like we T-voted or something like that. Um, but before we dive in, you know, like when you, you pick it up from last week, here's how the show would start. Previously on Patriarchs. So, first of all, in chapters, we're in chapter 27. In chapter 25, here's what's happened. Uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca is expecting babies. She has twins in her belly. And they are just going at it. Something's wrong. Like they're fighting each other inside her belly. She asks God what's going on. And he gives an oracle, a prophecy. He says, there's two nations in your womb. They're fighting each other. And the older son in your womb is going to serve the younger son. That's in chapter 25. Fast forward a little bit. Still in chapter 25. These twins are born now. And they're men. And one is named Esau, and he's the older brother, and he's a hairy brother. And he is a man of the wilderness, of the forest. He's a hunter. 
And his dad loves him for that. He loves Esau because Esau is a guy who makes his favorite meal, savory game. Okay? And Jacob is a mama's boy. He is uh, Rebecca's favorite. His dad doesn't really care for him too much, apparently, according to the scripture. And, uh, you know, he stays at home. Maybe he wears skinny jeans. And I don't know. I don't know. He's... I don't know about him. But anyway, what happens is Esau comes in from a hunt, and, uh, and he's famished, and brother Jacob there is cooking, because of course that's mama's boy, he's cooking, and, uh, and, and he's got all this stew, this lentil, and Esau says, I will sell my birthright to have some of that stew. So Jacob says, all right, you know, go ahead. So, so Esau sells his birthright, and the, the key here is that the narrator tells us that Esau despised his birthright. All right. Previously on Patriarchs. We saw chapter 26 it was a flashback. So we go back in time now before the boys are born to Isaac and Rebekah. And Isaac, his faith falters. And what we saw there is that God blessed him anyway. God took the, the promise he gave to Abraham, which was, I'm going to bless your family and make you abundant like the stars in the sky, so that you could be a blessing to the other nations, to the world. And that way the whole world would come to know God. And so we see a transfer of that blessing to Isaac. And so whoever then is Isaac's heir is going to receive that blessing as well. So, last week we had a key word. Does anyone remember the key word? Blessing, very good. Blessing last week was the key word, but it was only really a preview for this week because this week the word blessing or its verbal derivatives is used 21 times in this passage. So as we work through it, I just ask you to pay attention to that key word. So scene one in tonight's story actually starts with the last two verses of Genesis 26. And I'm just going to read scene one for us right now. So when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see, that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare that savory dish that I love, and bring it to, the, to me so that I may eat, and so that my soul may bless you when I die. Okay, let's face it, from a 21st century perspective, living in Bellingham, this is a weird story, and if you're, you know... It, your pastor always says, hey, you should read your Bible during the week and stuff. And you come across a story like this. How is this devotional? <laughs> right? It's one of those weird and enigmatic stories. But I, I promise you, if you stick with me, if we dig a little bit deeper, we're going to pick up on some clues that are going to lead us to some direct questions. Okay? So here we go. First clue. We're told that Esau married two women and that these women were Hittites. And the Hittites uh, that he's talking about were uh, out of the Canaanite line. So these Canaanites are notorious for idol worship uh, and being adversarial toward the people of God. And what's weird is before Abraham died, do you remember how big a deal it was to Abraham that Isaac take a wife 
from his own people. And he sent his servant way over to Haran and, and went to all this trouble to make sure that Isaac did not marry a local woman, a Canaanite woman or a Hittite woman. All right? He wanted to protect the blessing that he received from God and pass it on to a worthy family. But here Esau, not only does he take a foreign wife, but he takes two wives and they're Canaanite. So what happened? Why wasn't Isaac, his dad, more proactive in finding him a good wife, in finding him a wife from their family line? That's an interesting question. We learn that these two wives of Esau's that were Hittite, they, they brought grief. They troubled the soul of, literally, um, uh, Rebekah and Isaac. So maybe it was just Esau being stubborn and rebellious and said, no, I'm going to marry who I want to marry. Or maybe it was a combination of both. Because last I checked in a patriarchal society, the dads had a lot of power. And I think Isaac probably could have done better by Esau if he had tried. But what we learn by this little clue is that both the, the character of Esau and the character of Isaac is a little bit in question for us. Okay? Second clue. In the ancient Near Eastern world, when a, when a dad was about ready to die, he would call his sons together to give them a blessing. Two big things. This almost always happened in public, and it almost always included all the sons. So you would bring all the sons together, maybe in the, in, the, uh, in the open, in front of the rest of the family, maybe extended family even, and the father would bless the oldest to the youngest, but everybody received some kind of blessing, even though the oldest usually got the lion's share or the best piece of the pie. But in our story, Isaac summons Esau in secret. Okay? Very strange. In fact, he seems to want to give Esau the whole blessing, like just everything and not leave anything for Jacob. Okay, so let's hold that in suspension in our heads. Third, we have to remember the prophecy that God spoke over the womb of Rebekah. What did it say? It said that the younger son, or the older son, would serve the younger. Right? It said the older son, Esau, would end up serving Jacob, the younger son. But what we learn is that Esau was a hunter, and Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. In our passage, it says that Isaac loved that savory game. In English, we have a word for love. It's love. It's the only word we have for love. So in one day, I might say, I love ice cream from Mallard. All right? Can I get an amen? All right. I might also say with that same word, I love my wife, Corey. Now, hopefully you know that I love Corey at a much higher degree than Mallard, although Mallard is really good. Okay, but in Greek and Hebrew, you know, you have different words for love, and they have varying degrees of sincerity and power and, and connotation. So in Hebrew, there's a few ways you could say, I love savory game. And there's an appropriate way to say that. You use the word that has to do with food or stuff. But here is a, is a nice little clue because Isaac uses the same word for love that you would use for a spouse, that you would use for a family member. Okay? And this clue tells us that maybe Isaac is thinking here, making decisions with his sensuality, with his stomach. All right? In fact... He knows the oracle of God. He knows that the 
older is supposed to serve the younger. He knows God's will. He knows God's plan is for Jacob to supersede Esau. But he's blinded by his lust for food and, frankly, his favoritism for Esau. So think about that. Isaac knows what is right, but it's so out of the ordinary. No one else in that culture is going to let the younger son rule the older son. It's just so out of the ordinary that he deludes himself into doing what he wants to do. Is there anything in your life that God has placed on your heart, has asked you to do, you know it's true, and sometimes when you're really still, it comes up again and again and again. When you really listen, you know, when you remember. But then you're quick to cover it up. Maybe with a distraction. Maybe you just make yourself busy. Maybe you entertain yourself, like watching Swamp People on Netflix like I did. I'm serious. We all struggle with this. Like there's things that God brings up over and over again. And we know what's right. We know the right thing to do. But we're just bent on doing it our own way. So we distract ourselves. You know, don't we sometimes grow numb to God because we're so busy trying to manage our lives? By the way, this is where the discipline of fasting can be so powerful. Uh, a lot of times, I don't know about you, but my Protestant background says, oh, fasting, that's something that other people do, or it's really bad, it's like self-flagellation. Um, but fasting can be really powerful. For example, if you recognize, you know, I am like spending an inordinate amount of time just watching TV, or you know, I'm not allowing God to speak to me. You know, a fast from entertainment for a week, for a few days, could really open up uh, some space for God to speak. A lot of times we use food, especially in um, you know, wealthy societies where we have lots of different options for food. And we can use that to numb ourselves, to get our minds off of things. And sometimes a little fast from food or, or alcohol or whatever it is, whatever the deal is that you're, that you're using, it can, it can still your soul enough so that the waters that are rippling still and you can actually see what God might want to show you. And if we're really honest, it's not, it's not the fear of fasting that keeps us from fasting. It's the, it's the fear of what we're going to find out. All right? The, the story, I think, one of the side benefits of it, it, it provides us a little opportunity, a little warning that says, slow down. Be still. What is that thing that God has been telling you? Do it. But it also carries with it a warning. And that warning is that God's blessing is unstoppable, which brings us to scene number 2, verses 5 through 17. So Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, and he sang, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there, that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father, so that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and then I'll be as a deceiver in his sight. 
and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of young goats on his hands, on the smooth part of his neck. So also she gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. Scene two, we learn that Rebekah overhears Isaac's plan. And in response, Rebekah makes a plan of her own. On the surface, Rebecca's plan is exactly the sort of material that, is, that makes reality TV shows, right? There's, there's deceit, there's scheming, there's tension, possible dire consequences. But before we give Rebecca a bad rap, let's consider another side of the story. God made a promise to Abraham that his line would, re would rescue the world. And Rebecca was the recipient of God's powerful guidance as Abraham's servant came to her house way over in Haran. Rebecca has seen God at work. She believes that she's part of this providential tale, this story, this narrative of God. When Rebecca was pregnant with the boys, she received the oracle. She knows that Jacob is supposed to rule over Esau. Now Isaac was so blinded by his love for Esau that he was going to bless the wrong son against God's will. In patriarchal society, Rebecca doesn't really have much of a, an opportunity to go say, Hey Isaac, you're screwed up, but this is how we're doing things. I mean, it's not a very egalitarian society. So maybe she realized how irrational Isaac was being and actually unfaithful at this point in his life. So she does something dra drastic. She boldly, and trying to be faithfully, tries to ensure that, that God's promise is going to go to the right person. She's so bold that in this text she commands Jacob to listen to her. Jacob's a grown man. Again, this is a bold woman. Uh, I command you, listen to me, get these goats, we're going to dress you up in furs and try and fool dad. And it made me reflect on whether or not whether or not they're right, or like Rebecca and Jacob are right, it makes me reflect on whether I may, maybe I'm too passive with the promise of God in my life. Are we taking seriously, church, the fact that we are blessed to be a blessing? That we are recipients of faith so that we can share faith and hope with other people? I just think this whole scene, Isaac is so laissez-faire about the whole deal. And he's going to do whatever he wants to do because it's the way the world works, or it's because it's how his stomach works, uh, or because he really does have favorites. All right, let's keep moving in the story. That was a commercial break. Now, let's get back to scene number three. Starting in verse 18. Well, then he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, Well, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Get up, please. Sit and eat of my game, that you may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, 
How is it that you have so quickly returned, my son? And he said, well, because the Lord God, your God, caused it to happen to me. And then Isaac said to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob comes close to his, Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate. And he also brought him wine, and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Curse those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. All right. Have you ever stopped to think about how weird that story is? Okay. Wayne, are you up for being a good sport? Okay, come on up. <clears throat> From now on, you are Isaac. Father Isaac. There is. You don't have to be. It has nothing to do with your age. All right. All right. Put this on. You're blind. Yeah. All right. I need a, a hairy man. You'll work. Yeah. Justin. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is dirt from my backyard. It's the smell of the open field. Okay. <laughs> okay. And notice how I smell like the open field. Feel his beard. What? You gotta, he's got to feel your beard. My beard. There you go. There you go. All right. All right. So, Wayne, why don't you tell your older son here to go get you some games such as you love? Oh, yes. <clears throat> get me some game and All cook right. it nicely. All right. Yeah. Be gone with you. He's back. I am back. I am talking right now so you know what my voice sounds like. Please feel my beard. Notice how I smell like the open field. Yes, yes, yes it's a beard all It right. is. But you sound like <laughs> Isaac, did you buy that? What? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> all right. All right. You're great at that. I'm going to have to have you up for more comic relief. Got some great actors here. So... You know, sometimes we get in the habit of reading these Bible stories, and if you've been in church a while, you've probably read that several times in your life. 
when you actually see it acted out, how crazy that would be. Like, he put goat skins on and fooled his dad. I mean, it's crazy. Borders on ridiculous. And it either shows how senile Isaac was at this time, or actually, there's a fair bit written that Isaac might actually have realized it was Jacob and been so non-confrontational and so afraid of Esau's rage, because later on we learn when Esau finds out, he's, he goes on a murderous rage for years. And, and that he actually just kind of plays along. And then when Esau says, well, bless me, he goes, I don't know what happened. Jacob came in and, and did it. You know, it, So that's one theory. That doesn't really bear much on the story. But he ends up blessing Jacob. Isaac blesses Jacob. And boy, does he bless Jacob. The dew of heaven. You know, in an arid land, the dew of heaven is pure water coming to, to water your crops and water your animals. And it's just the source of life, you know. Here, we have water in such abundance, we don't talk like that. Maybe the sunshine of heaven would be our blessing or something. But the dew of heaven, right? The fatness of the earth, that's the blessing that they would just produce abundantly, you know, animals and, and crops, that people will serve him and nations bow down, that his brother and br- brothers, when it says brothers in the plural, it's just talking about uh, future males in that line are going to serve him, including Esau. And then we hear this last part of the blessing is a curse against those who curse him and a, and a blessing for those who bless him. And that's just like uh, reverse from, from uh, Abraham's blessing in Genesis 12 where God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So that is a, kind of a verbal link that Jacob is now receiving not only the blessing of his father, but he's the carrier now of this promise to Abraham. And all this talk of blessing is foreign to me, and it's probably foreign to you, at least if you're from this Western culture. Um, you know, what's, what's the big deal? How come you couldn't just correct the problem later on? One of my coaches in high school had above his office, talk is cheap. And then it's a great axiom, especially for coaching, because you got a bunch of guys blabbing their mouths like... Richard Sherman is uh, Optimus Prime, and Megat- if you watch the football game today, it was horrible, but um, anyway, because the Ducks lost. But, you know, guys that are anyone blabbing their mouth, I mean, it's basically saying, let your performance talk for you. And I would say most of the time that's true. But words are not just words all the time. You know, ever since the modernist movement, uh, we in the West have been so influenced in how we use our language. And typically we use words, whether we speak them or write them down, we use words to describe what actually is. Right? We use words to describe reality as we perceive it. They're descriptive. But in the patriarchal period, when a father would bless a son, the blessing was almost prescriptive. The blessing carried power behind it. The father's blessing over their children almost set their course for their life. In a sense then, blessing in the Bible is sacramental. And what I mean is the blessing offered by the promise bearer of God carried with it mysterious, mysterious substance. It wasn't just words. And in the church we recognize two sacraments. So for example, baptism. In one sense, baptism is 
hey, you, know, you get someone up, you say some words over them, you dunk them in water, and everyone claps and you have a potluck or something. I mean, that's, that's one way you could view baptism. But we believe baptism is more than that. That's symbolic of dying with Christ and being raised to new life. And even though we can't see anything happen on the outside, we believe something definitely substantial and real has happened on the inside. Communion could be seen as a mere object lesson to help us remember how Jesus died, how he sacrificed his body and blood to give us new life. But since the very beginning, the church has taken it to mean more than that. Through participation in the Lord's Supper, we commune with Jesus and with the larger church throughout the world in a mysterious and intimate way. You can't explain it. You can't quantify it. You can't put it in a box. But there's substance to that. One of my mentors uh, was working through this very passage about 10 years ago. And uh, I think he and his wife were celebrating their 30th anniversary. And they took their three adult children to Hawaii with them to celebrate. It was a really nice thing to do. And he took one afternoon with each of his adult kids. And they walked on the beach in that afternoon. And by the end of their time together with each kid, he blessed them. And he put his hand on their head and anointed them with oil. And he spoke words of encouragement as he had watched them grow. And he told me all this after he returned weeping, and it made me start to cry, just the power of speaking into his two sons and his daughter, um, how proud he was of them, the strength that he saw in them, warnings of the weaknesses he saw. He spoke words of blessing and truth and encouragement over each one. And I think as we work through this text, it, this section gives me pause in how I use my words, how I don't use my words. You know, some of us are guilty of maybe saying wrong things, things that, that break down. But it's just as wrong to maybe not say anything if we're like a silent type with our friends or with our family or with our kids. There's something powerful about what we can pass down to other people through our words. And I would caution us to take that seriously. Now that we have maybe a little better grasp of the power of blessing in the ancient world, let's move on to scene four. And I think it should hit us a little harder. Um, starting in 2730. Now, it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob... And Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it to his dad. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, so that you may bless me. And Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, who then was he who hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of it all before you came and I blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly bitter cry. And he said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. And he took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I've made him your master, and all his relatives I've given him 
to you as servants, or given him as servants. And with grain and new wine I've sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me even also. Oh, my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of the heaven above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless, that you will break his yoke from your neck. Scene four is gut-wrenching. I'm an older son. (laughs) Isaac, this is so ironic, scene four. Isaac tries to avoid God's will by blessing Esau, and not only just blessing Esau in private, but blessing him with the entire thing. He almost leaves nothing for Jacob, but it totally got reversed. And because he blessed Jacob to the fullest extent, when Esau is now crying his heart out, he has very little left to give him. Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, now loses the blessing trying to make a savory dish for his father. You see the irony. You can read this story from chapter 25 and you can see the foreshadowing written on the wall. You can know in your head that Esau doesn't deserve this blessing, that he had all of this coming. But when the story is told, and I've got to say it's told so well, you can't help but feel for Esau when he says, Haven't you reserved a blessing for me? To which Isaac matter-of-factly replies, Behold, I've made him your master. Now as for you, what can I do, my son? How do we apply this text? Especially when it pulls on our emotional heartstrings like that. What about tolerance? What about fairness? Can't he just take it back or mix it up, cut it in half? One caution that I have for us as we interpret this text is to not read it as a morality lesson. Genesis is, a, is the accounting of how things went down, not how things ought to have gone down. All right? Just because Esau and Isaac are shown to be flawed, we should also be appalled at the behavior of Rebekah and Jacob. Nowhere in the Bible is Rebekah and Jacob's behavior glorified or justified. In fact, Jacob reaps the consequences of, de- of his deceit. As the story continues in these later, on, these later weeks, we're going to see that Esau flies into a murderous rage. So here Jacob has... Okay, so the birthright that he got from Esau from the stew, that's the material stuff. So all Isaac's sheep and his lands, that's the birthright. And Jacob got that from Esau. The blessing is the spiritual side, like the prophetic side, like you're going to rule. So... Jacob is the bearer of both of those things, technically. But because Esau is now out for blood, Jacob has to leave all that material stuff behind. He doesn't even get to cash in on it. His deceit has cost him literally money, literally his wealth. Then he goes on, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks, but he goes on to his uncle Laban for a little bit of refuge. He falls in love with Rachel, 
I'm sorry, yeah, Rachel. And uh, he wants to marry Rachel, so Laban causes Jacob to work for seven years for her. And on the night of their wedding, they go into the tent to kind of consummate the deal. And she's wearing a veil. So just like Jacob deceived his blind father, now he's blind to reality. He ends up sleeping with Leah. And Laban totally deceived him. So he had to work another seven years to marry uh, Rachel. So the deceiver is deceived. The story, of course, you knew I was going to say this, isn't really about Esau and Jacob or Isaac and Rebekah. The story is about the unstoppable blessing of God. The story tells us that God is going to be God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God will do what God wants to do. And we study our theologies, we study our scriptures, and we come up with formulations. And this is good. Like God tells us that we're supposed to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there's nothing wrong with study. But there comes a time when no amount of study or knowledge can put God in a big... There's not a box big enough. We are not capable of understanding completely everything about God. And stories like this are great to remind us... You know, and really make us do this. Get on our knees and say, Ah, you are awesome. You are so far above what I can comprehend all the time. Thank you that you revealed a lot about yourself. Thank you for coming as Jesus. But there, this story reminds us that there's something bigger going on, right? He's bigger. His ways are so different from us. In the end, God doesn't fit neatly into our organized way of thinking. We can't explain Him. We can't justify His actions. And dang it, that drives me crazy. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, for example, Father, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're really meaning there, I hope, is, Father, we hope that stuff happens, but help us to want Your kingdom to come. Help me to actually be in your will, because it's coming, whether or not you and I are on board. Okay? That's part of, the, part of the gospel, the good news, is that it's happening for sure, and that's part of the warning, is that it's happening for sure. <laughs> so where are we at with that? This kingdom that's coming, it's upside down. The oldest doesn't automatically get the inheritance. The powerful in this world aren't necessarily the powerful in that world. In the kingdom of God, the first will be last, the last will be first. And this should provoke in us, I think, an awe and a wonder and a holy, righteous, good kind of reverence, fear of God. Not that we're like, oh, we're afraid all the time, but... God is not some pushover that we just get to like, you know what, I know I made a lot of mistakes, but he'll just smooth it over in the end. Because it's really God. Our lives might look like a reality TV show sometimes, but God's blessing is unstoppable. And you guys, that's very good news because his blessing is so much better and purer and richer than anything we could conceive of ourselves, when, even when our plans go astray. At the end of the day, the passage in Genesis 27 can't properly be interpreted without Jesus. I really believe that. Even though Jacob received 99.999% oh, of the blessing... 
Esau isn't completely left out. Listen to this. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you're restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. It would seem that Jacob's line is blessed, that Esau's line is cursed indefinitely. But in that but, we see a crack of light penetrating what could be a dark destiny. God's unstoppable blessing summed up in Jesus. And through Jesus, we are no longer blessed just because we're descendants of Jacob, just because we're a certain nationality or ethnicity. It's no longer merely Israelites who are in the family of God. In fact, Jesus redefines what it means to be part of God's family. And so now, through Jesus, all who place their faith in Him, all who place their faith in Him, you who place your faith in Him, are called children of the living God. Descendants of Jacob and descendants of Esau, Americans and Syrians and Chinese and Kiwis and East Indians and Africans all have available to them entrance into the kingdom of heaven through Jesus. And because of this unstoppable blessing, you and I may partake in this new life in the kingdom. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for this text, this reminder that your ways are not our ways and that your blessing is an unstoppable force. Thank you that your blessing is good. It doesn't have to be that way. Thank you that your blessing is available. It doesn't have to be that way. Thank you that for some reason you saw fit to share this good news with everyone here. It didn't have to be that way. Lord, I pray for help in trusting you, for help in laying down control or, or perceived control over our lives. Lord, help us to get on board with what you're doing, with your ways, with your kingdom, with your will. Thank you, Jesus, for making this possible. Amen.